Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. This week, J.F. and I are discussing Herman Hesse's 1943 novel, The Glass Bead Game. It's a strange, quiet piece of science fiction about a future society that has risen from the rubble of what looks suspiciously like our own era. We don't know how many centuries have passed since an unspecified catastrophe befell the decadent Age of the Feuilleton. The anonymous scribe who tells us the tale of Joseph Knecht, the novel's main character, alludes to the sacrifices made by a monkish order to rescue and preserve the noblest part of a culture gone to utter ruin. In the end, we are told, the order prevailed and recreated something of the world's pre-cataclysm culture by means of the glass bead game. In this episode, J.F. and I spend much of our time talking about this game, and games generally, so I won't talk too much about that right now. Neither will I say much about Knecht's rise in the hierarchy of the order to become the master of the glass bead game, or Magister Ludi. But here I will say something about what happens after that. Knecht, whose name means servant, or bondsman, now rules the great institutional edifice that has been built around the game. He is a good leader, and learns what leaders must, that to lead is to serve, and to serve is to sacrifice. Knecht is a faithful and selfless servant of the game, but in serving it, he comes to see its limits. He shocks his colleagues by writing a manifesto warning of the incipient decadence of the game, believing it has lost touch with the wellsprings of human life and creativity. Knecht's colleagues ignore his warnings and thereby fail to see that their institutions of higher learning have become complacent, self-referential, and self-serving, forgetful of history and contemptuous of uncultured outsiders and their ordinary lives. Knecht leaves his post and decides to begin life again as the tutor of an old friend's son, Tito. The novel ends suddenly, when, after Tito light-heartedly challenges him to a swim, Knecht drowns in a frigid mountain lake. The remaining hundred or so pages constitute an anthology of Knecht's surviving writings, a sheaf of youthful poems and three imaginary autobiographies. We don't talk about the later part of Knecht's story today, but I'm sure we will in our next episode, which will also be about the glass bead game. The conversation you're about to hear went in the direction of what might be called ludic studies, or game studies, and circled round to the I Ching, which plays a prominent role in Hesse's novel. So we never talked about the implications of Knecht's escape from the walled garden of the glass bead game, which is too bad for me, as my entire life has been in the service of very glass bead game-like entities, namely classical music and academic musicology, and when I read Hesse's novel, I found many of my own thoughts jumping off the page. But as I say, we're doing a second episode on the glass bead game next, so all this and doubtless more will be available for your listening pleasure.
Speaking of listening pleasure, have you noticed something missing around here? Something that ordinarily intrudes on your enjoyment of podcast listening, worming its way into your ear relentlessly and inescapably, the greedy murmur of little men shilling for draft kings and whatnot, you know, ads. You don't hear them because we don't run them. That's an aesthetic choice. Ads are ugly, and we're trying to make something beautiful. So we're leaving money on the table. Pride will cost you, and the decision to stay ad-free costs us plenty. Luckily for us, we have an alternative, Patreon, where listeners can pay a risibly low monthly fee to enjoy bonus writing and audio, and which will only pester you about in intros like this one. We love our patrons. Their support shows us that we weren't total fools to trust our listeners to be there for us. If you enjoy the little glass bead game we're running here, and the fact that we don't defile it with ads, you might consider joining our Patreon too. Oh, and by the way, Pierre-Yves Martel, who writes all the music for our show, is dropping the CD of his album, Weird Studies, Music from the Podcast, Volume 1, on November 12th. So, if lack of a CD option was holding you back, now's the time. Okay, on with the show. Was this your first time reading it? Second time through this book. Yeah, same here. Although the first time was about 20 years ago. So, And I feel like this is a book that you mentioned to me early on. You were yeah. like, you should totally read this. It was, it was on the initial list that we drafted, remember? Yeah. Yeah. And then I didn't think much about it. And then Meredith actually started oh, I talking see. about it. Meredith has to mention it. Oh, yeah, well... <laughs> Once the cool kids yeah. show an interest in something, I got to be with the cool kids, you know? Right. So I guess that tipped the scale. Actually, I feel like I've had a bunch of people in my life over the years telling me I should read this book. And then when I read it, I was like, oh, I kind of see why this book uh, strikes pretty close to the bone for me. Yeah. Like, this is one of those books that feels sort of like it was written for me because it intersects so obviously with stuff that is on my mind and has been on my mind for years and years and years. Uh, I confess that I, uh, that I thought about you quite a bit, a few, cha- a few passages, oh, Phil's, <laughs> Phil's going to like this bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, just the, the ambiguous nature of institutional life, <laughs> right. um, the ambivalences and the, the weird kind of um, challenge of trying to individuate, but also be part of something, right? Yeah. Being part of a hierarchy, being yeah. subordinate within an institutional structure. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean... But there's like more stuff to talk about this as well. That makes it sound really, really dry, but it's also a meditation on the nature of creativity. Yep. Uh, creation versus recreation. Yeah. It's an investigation into a kind of ontology of truth and beauty and... It's this wonderfully optimistic prophecy or utopia almost. Um, it's not really a utopia, but it's it's a science it's kind fiction kind of book. a utopia. 
But yeah. at the same time, there's like a flaw running through the heart of it that is only gradually revealed. Yes. Um, yeah. It's also a book about service, the nature of service, what right. it is to serve. Yeah. And how service sometimes can look like defiance, you know. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, that you can serve in one context while defying simultaneously in another. And it's also a book that gives us a lot to think about concerning the relationship of kind of a secular humanist idea of reason or like a enlightenment idea of a culture built upon reason and religion. Yeah. Because it concerns an order, capital O order, of monk-like individuals, an all-male society of monastics who nevertheless are sworn to an idea of the intellect rather than the spirit. Mm -hmm. And the instability between the faculty of intellect and faculty of spirit is yet another thing that this book spends or a lot of time dwelling on. Maybe soul as opposed to, because spirit to me is, uh, this is semantic and I mean, probably useless, but no, spirit and intellect. A yeah. useful distinction yeah. to make. Yeah. So. No, but what was the distinction you wanted to make? Oh, the, the, the distinction between, uh, I, I tend to associate spirit with intellect. Hmm. With a kind of logos and soul, with uh, the more emotional, lunar aspects yeah. of the self, and that—I mean, this is something. The, 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 yeah, so do I, actually. Yeah, the conflict between spirit and soul, or let's say the conflict between worldliness and the esoteric, is something that runs through all of Hesse's work, right? Um, right. Narcissus and Goldman, the Siddhartha. Uh, what, is this, what else have I read by him? Um, that, Steppenwolf. It just seems like he was really kind of just devoted to exploring this problem of how you live out your individuation, your like, make a soul while still being part of a world and not falling on one side of the tracks so that you become a one-sided, incomplete sort of person. Mm. And uh, mm. and this was his last book. So in a way, it's kind of the the masterwork at the end that kind of sums it all up in a way. Yeah. So, so, so that conflict is really kind of central. But in the, another dichotomy in the book that's explored is the, the dichotomy of work and play, of a game and that's right. uh, a kind of work project and how those things can become, how do you turn work into play? How do you turn play into work that serves? Because like the whole novel is centered on a game called the glass bead game, uh, which these scholar monks play. The, the book is the story of a man named Joseph Knecht. He was a young peasant at first, or he came from... Yeah, he kind of comes from nobody, like we don't learn from this book who his parents are, or what his family circumstances. It's just very humble. Yeah. Yeah, the whole book is written from the point of view of a member of the society, a biographer who is also one of these scholar monks. And so the whole right. tone of it is very kind of reverential and, and formal and and uh, very medieval. The whole thing feels very kind of medieval. It's funny because the narrator is writing the biography of a person. But he, at the beginning, he says, this is very unusual. We don't usually name people. We don't usually focus on individuals. We focus on the role someone has played within the hierarchy. But in this case, it's very important that we do speak a little bit 
to the individuality of this particular person. So, so yes. it's, it's like, you can see that Joseph connect is a kind of, um, a kind of a liminal figure within the world of these scholar monks. And his whole story is, well, he shows promise very early on as a musician. And then eventually he discovers the glass bead game. And then he becomes a master of this game. He becomes the leader of the department within the order that's in charge of the game and eventually right. uh, leaves the institution. And so it's a very kind of like, you said it it makes it sound dry, what you were saying earlier, but it is kind of dry. The novel is kind of dry, I thought, anyways. Um, it's a novel of ideas. It is, indeed. Uh, it has characters in it, and they're not pasteboard characters, but ultimately, this is a novel about ideas. Yeah. And, but the game becomes the centerpiece of this guy's life. Uh, the main character becomes obsessed with the glass bead game, which occupies a kind of ambiguous place, even within Castalia, which is the province of these scholar monks, because some people see it as a kind of uh, decadent or, or frivolous kind of pastime, and others see it as this great spiritual technology. And of course, Joseph Knecht sides with the latter, and, and so the game becomes the, the center point for his whole life. And what's great is that the game is never really... There is one part where Hesse kind of describes what this game looks like, right? Because as, as a gamer myself, mm. as when I started reading this, I'm like, I want to know how to play this. Like, how do you... How do you <laughs> but we'll talk about what it is. But just so that the listener knows, um, the game is it remains very ambiguous, you know, what it is or how yeah. it's played or what it looks like. But let's talk about what the game's about or what it does first, and then we can... Well, the game, there's a whole chunk at the beginning before we even start getting the story of Joseph Knecht. And this opening section is a description of the game, an account of its origins, but it also does a lot of the sort of framing of the sci-fi element of the story. So this is, the events of the story take place at some undetermined point in the far future. And in this opening section, we're told that the world had been plunged into violence and chaos at a certain point in what is called the age of the feuilleton. Now, a feuilleton is a, you know, it's like a newspaper editorial. It's a, you know, a take, you know, the kind of thing. Twitter. That, it's the age of Twitter. <laughs> it's, yeah, you might as well just say the, yeah, the, or the age of social media, the age of Facebook. A feuilleton is a lightweight pronouncement upon something, opinionating, but in a very shallow, even decadent register. And the author of this, as you say, it's presumed to be a monk or a monkish person of this order, telling the story of Joseph Knecht and telling it very much from the point of view of a loyal member of this order, from which point of view, like this order exists to safeguard human culture, to safeguard it against the tide of barbarism that almost engulfed it at the end of the age of the feuilleton. You know, this, this novel was written during World War II, was published, I believe, in 1943 or 44. It's a wartime novel, and the traces of World War II lie heavy upon it. You know, Jung was Swiss, and lived out the war in Switzerland and Hesse like who did I say Jung oh. <laughs> and, and another Swiss writer yeah. yes Hesse yeah. um 
clearly the feelings of apocalypse, of a, a vast storm engulfing civilization and threatening to destroy culture itself, something that totalitarian regimes of the 20th century repeatedly tried to do. Think of the Khmer Rouge of Cambodia, like it ends up being as mad ideology of extermination that leads to the murder of millions of Cambodians, and yet uh, is aimed at the creation of a new and purified society. This horrible tale gets played out again and again throughout the 20th century, and of course it continues to be played out in our own, the exterminating vision of a purified culture. Mm -hmm. And so in telling this story, the unnamed narrator is setting up sort of what happens when a few brave and determined survivors of the age of the Futon try to imagine a culture that can transcend the nightmare that they've just sort of passed through. And the glass bead game begins as a series of tentative experiments involving actual glass beads, but then increasingly becomes more abstract. And it becomes a kind of a game of culture, a game in which you abstract figures or meanings from elements of human culture, and indeed beyond human culture, also perhaps scientific things like a pattern of stars in a constellation. The idea is that you could, for example, start with a Chinese garden and the arrangement of buildings according to the principles of feng shui, and you could abstract from that a pattern and then find that pattern reflected in a work of North German Baroque organ music from the mid-17th century. And that figure or motif thus transformed by its encounter with this other piece of culture could then suggest yet another one. And in this way, now keep in mind, it's never entirely described how this happens. The player of the glass bead game constructs a kind of web work of culture in which the creativity of the past is woven into a new kind of recreated form. Yeah, a kind of tapestry. Yeah, tapestry. The idea of cultural regeneration that is spoken of here is of a turn towards the Apollonian after a long, nightmarish, blood-soaked, drunken period of Dionysian terror. Right, right. Nice, nice way of putting it. It's like a coming to your senses. It's described very much as a culture coming to its senses after uh, a brutal and irrationalistic time. And that might remind us actually of the response of a lot of German-speaking intellectuals and artists coming out of the Nazi period. And I'm thinking particularly of the composer Paul Hindemith, who at the end of World War II, uh, some years after the end of World War II, composed a series of madrigals in his modernist and very Apollonian style. And... One of these madrigals is called Kraft fand zu Form, uh, Form Found Strength. And I'm going to read the text, the poem of this. Power found form, and form keeps a wise house. I see an old world falling to pieces. From rubble and ashes, from smoke and death's prattle, a new design, horizontal and vertical, is born. 
Art is of no help here, ornament in halls of ruin. Gambled away, lost. What once arose from this night into the light of divine blue. What is that was? The dice have been cast. Wisdom from the abyss, unfrightened heart. The courage for sinking, for silence of the deadly sort, is what we need for the rebuilding of the tower. And we need men, real men, to pound this grief into stone blocks, inglorious, true, their own. The way is clear, even if the heart often trembles. That reminds me of, um, this is something I was thinking about reading the book, Morris Berman's idea of the new monasticism. Mm. In one of his books, and I forget which one, he goes into great depth developing this idea that the only hope we have now, as plunged into the age of the feuilleton as we are, is to constellate ourselves according to some ideal that has been rejected by our society in order to preserve certain things, much like the monks of ancient Ireland preserved classical literature during the so-called Dark Ages, in order that once we get through this Kali Yuga that we're in, or whatever you want to call it, we will have conserved, we will have preserved that which we need to rebuild. So like Morris Berman's vision of contemporary civilization is one of Uh, the apocalypse has already happened. This is something that we've discussed on this show when we talk about Hiroshima and the effect it had. And I have a lot of sympathy for that point of view. And yeah, it's important, I think, to keep in mind that Hesse wrote this during World War II. At the same time, I don't want to insist too much on that historical context, because I think, as we were kind of suggesting earlier when we likened the idea of the feuilleton to Twitter... I think that he wrote this book for us now. I mean, it feels very, very yeah, relevant. It feels right now. very contemporary to me. Yes, extremely so. So, by placing it in this historical context, we're not trying to dismiss it and saying it is of its time. We're not trying to historicize this novel. I think that it has prophetic value, and probably even more now. I don't think. I think this is one thing that you read when you read about the book. The book has. Um, caused quite a bit of consternation. People haven't really been able to come to some agreement or consensus as to what this book was about. (laughs) Um, The introduction to the edition I have is just, it's just horrible. It's just, (laughs) it's just like, it's like this guy doesn't get it at all. Um, And uh, I don't know. I just think like now we're in a position to kind of receive this book Mm. and understand what it's getting at. Um, that sounds a bit dramatic, perhaps, but I, I'm just trying to make the point that it 
it's very relevant to our situation now. And this idea that Morris Berman proposed of a new monasticism, and he was talking about this, what, about 20 years ago, he probably wrote about this. But now it's hard to see how one could do otherwise, but get behind something like that, considering how much stuff simply can't be discussed anymore in a civilized way. It seems like the only real conversations are going to be had in small networks, maybe like the Weird Studies yeah. Network or the Widowsphere, but the, there is no kind of large-scale, mainstream, mass conversation worth having anymore. It seems like monastic cells is the future of intellectual work. Monasticism is the resort of those who have given up hope for the culture yeah. that they find themselves in. Yeah, you know, If you don't think that the objects of your reverence, the things that you care about, like for us, that would be art. Perhaps, you know, for a religious person, somebody who takes new monasticism as a strategy for Christian life, perhaps it would be the absence of God in the public sphere and public discourse. Whatever it is you feel doesn't find a home in the agora in the central square of our conversations, then you're going to start manning the lifeboats. You're going to start thinking in terms of how to keep this stuff alive, even if it's under attack or simply ignored. So I suspect that the new monastic mood is striking a lot of people right now. It's not just a mood that you and I find ourselves in or that uh, people of this faith or that faith might find themselves in. But anybody who has anything that they would like to see protected and sustained, I think almost anybody in that situation is going to find themselves in a new monastic mood. It's interesting, Morris Berman wrote a piece in the later Trump years. I can't remember the title or when it was written, but I remember reading it, where he said basically, well, I told you, bitches. (laughs) Yeah. It's like new monasticism now more than ever. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people read that and they were like, okay, yeah, fair. Yeah. Now, that being said, this novel is by no means uncritical of the idea of the glass bead game or the idea of this new monastic movement that grows up in the rubble of the old world the revival of high culture or a certain vision of high culture from the ashes of the age of the feuilleton, it has a flaw that goes by so quickly you almost don't notice it at first, but it becomes very, very important in this novel, which is the feeling that these monastics of the glass bead game, the order, the feeling they have that the violence and chaos of the age of the feuilleton came from untrammeled artistic creation. Yeah. From a kind of wild promiscuity of creation, of creativity without any proportion or measure or restraint. And so they see their role purely in terms of preservation of culture and through the glass bead game, a kind of very refined form of appreciation of culture. So this 
business of finding patterns, abstracting patterns from different items of culture and finding correspondences between them is itself kind of an art, but it's an, it is a secondary art. It grows out of the patterns that have already been established in the poetry and music and architecture, etc., of all the world's cultures. You get the sense that there's nothing new to create, that they're all, oh, that, all, that yes. remains to, all that remains to be done is to play with what has been said. It's this, exactly. and you can see how Hesse was trying to show us the enantiodromia of our age, like how, how yeah. unbridled innovation will lead to a kind of like, like a stilted conservatism eventually, because the reaction will be so so extreme. And that's the, the challenge of the book. Uh, the challenge of the main character in the book is how to bring back a Dionysian spirit into this Apollonian world. The very last scene, which is like when he's with uh, his pupil and his pupil starts to dance by the lake, it's the Dionysian scene of revelry and, and uh, an explosion of kind of desire and pleasure. And that's what the book ends on. So it's kind of telling us that the, you know, the more extreme, the more we push into the Dionysian direction, the more things will slap back Apollonianly in the future. Uh, and so it's always a, a question of trying to find some kind of balance uh, within the dynamism of history, trying to find a way yeah. to, to keep things in balance. There's a thing I once wrote for the Patreon called Time Binding and the Music History Survey. And I was going with Alfred Krzybski's notion of time binding, which Robert Anton Wilson made much of. And it's the idea that in order for a culture to exist, really, it has to bind time, but not too much. Right. I'm simplifying greatly, of course, but like time binding would be like memory that I can remember different things that have happened to me in my life. You know, my memory binds them into some kind of whole or some kind of coherency, which, however fictitious or partial, nevertheless gives me a meaning for my actions now, yeah. right? And if you have a culture that does nothing but bind time, that has zero innovation and nothing but the ritualized repetition of what has already happened, what has already been done, then you end up with a kind of null culture. There's no, no transformation. Culture can't get done. Yeah. If everything is simply a replica of everything else. So that would be maybe the ultimate extent of conservative time binding where there's no change. But the weird thing is that if you push it all the way to the other end of this spectrum of time binding from zero change from one generation to another to a kind of total flux where there's no memory, basically. No grand there's narrative. The, yeah, it's it's sort of like what the French post-structural thinkers meant when they were talking about schizophrenia as an aspect of postmodernism, where you're like that guy in Memento who can't remember anything for longer than five minutes. You have such a kind of a constant onrush of new stimuli. One stimulus replaces the other and kind of wipes out the memory of it. The products come so fast in the product cycle that uh, there's only the new. There's never a repertory. There's never even a horizon from which to understand the new. In a weird way, you end up in the same place as you did before with a like 
complete immobility of culture. You end up in a situation where memory is unable to act upon the items of culture and give them a significant shape such that you could do something with it. Right. In the kind of hyper-accelerated consumer culture we live in, there's kind of no purchase. There's no handhold. Yeah. And as much as this is a novel of ideas, it's not a book of philosophy. And so Hesse is not trying to spell this out. But there is this strong implication that the end point of modernity, the end point of the age of the futon, is a mad creativity that reverses into no creativity at all. Yeah, yeah. Into yeah. a complete exhaustion of all the springs of culture. And so they see their role as, and in a sense, they it's almost as if they accept that condition of culture as a penance. Yeah. And see their role exclusively as preservers of a past culture. But they view artistic creation almost as a taboo. Like Joseph Knecht writes a few youthful poems that are reproduced at the end of the book as almost sort of as if this is a book that contains a vita and then some miscellaneous documents from the man's life. At the end, yeah. 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 And it reports that the mere fact that Knecht wrote these poems is sort of controversial because... Kind of scandalous. He, yeah, yeah, that he had the temerity to advance some autonomous bit of creativity of his own rather than being content with the processing of existing forms of art. Yes. Or the recreation of it's, existing forms of art. And they're not wrong, right? Like, as creativity is dangerous. Creation, the act of creation is dangerous. It's innately subversive, anarchic, and all that stuff. And uh, so the, the question is, how do you contain it? How do you allow it to happen without trying to put the controls on it, which would negate it completely, because creativity is either free or non-existent. Artistic creativity or scientific creativity or philosophical creativity can't have rules. <laughs> it, it, there are always rules. Mm, I don't know about that. You can have, okay, well, we've discussed this before, like the sonata form and how it, it's like the rules are or, part or of- Or rhymes or whatever. Exactly. So that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying it can't have conventions, but you have to allow one to innovate within the rules. And also you have to allow one to innovate outside the rules. I mean, it's just, just the way that art history works, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So you could have rules, for example, you know, the classical theater rules, you know, that all action has to take place within a 24 hour period. But of course, everyone would cheat or would try to try to find an innovative way of making that work. So it's not so much that the rules don't exist. It's that the rules have value only to the extent that they serve a fundamentally unbridled act of creation. And so yes. the order is right to be wary of that. It's just that, like you're saying, they seem to be doing penance for a time when things went too far and now they have to kind of pay that debt. And so they don't allow, they know that people could innovate and create, but they decide to do this. And the I think that Hesse's criticism isn't so much aimed at the glass bead game per se, but at the institution that um, governs the game and, and preserves it. There's a great poem that Connect wrote in his youth about the game. I'm going to read it. It's very short. It kind of captures the beauty because we've, we've, we've just talked about the kind of limitations of the game, but 
the power of this game is something to talk about as well. Um, so the, the poem is called The Glass Bead Game. We reenact with reverent attention the universal chord, the master's harmony, evoking an unsullied communion, minds and times of highest sanctity. We draw upon the iconography whose mystery is able to contain the boundlessness, the storm of all existence, give chaos form, and hold our lives in reign. The pattern sings like crystal constellations, and when we tell our beads, we serve the whole, and cannot be dislodged or misdirected, held in the orbit of the cosmic soul. So, the game is a way of transcending the specific kind of vicissitudes of any particular epistem in order to come into contact with something like truth, but not kind of a determinate form of truth, a kind of truthfulness of form as such. One thing I was reminded of, and I don't know if it's uh, William Irwin Thompson's idea of Wissenkunst, which he uh, develops at the end of his book, The Time Falling Bodies Take to Light. William Roman Thompson was a historian who became kind of a maverick, esoteric thinker poet. Uh, he passed away a couple of years ago. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with his work. A fantastic writer uh, and thinker. And in, in uh, the epilogue to The Time Falling Bodies Take to Light, he develops this idea of Wissenkunst, which he contrasts with the traditional Wissenschaft, right? Which is German for science in a more than just our way of thinking of science kind of way. It's like science is this pursuit of knowledge. And so scholarship, I guess, or research. Yeah, and systematic uh, scholarship. Yeah, right, exactly. And and Wissenkunst, uh, Kunst is game, right? Play in German. So it's it's the play of knowledge as opposed to the work of knowledge. And he describes what he means by this new idea of Wissenkunst. And strangely, it sounds like he's describing the glass bead game or what one of the founders of the game might have written. So he writes, what I'm talking about is the resacralization of culture, and in particular, the resacralization of scholarship. I am talking about a movement from ratio to logos. Under the sway of ratio, a unit is uniform and capable of measurement and mass production. In the light of logos, each being is unique and yet capable of universal expression. In Wissenschaft, that's the old scholarship, the old work, in Wissenschaft, you train a, new, a neutral observer to read a meter with objectivity. All observers everywhere should see the same event and describe it in the same way. In Wissenkunst, the historian, like the musical composer, again, because uh, the glass bead game has its roots in musicology, we're told in the book. In Wissenkunst, the historian, like the musical composer, creates a unique narrative of time and in this unique narrative, the reader recognizes the universal truth of events. It's moving f towards truth through the singular. This is me, sorry. Mm. Not, not. The art of Wissenkutz comes from research, for the historian is not free to make up characters and events any more than Aeschylus was free to invent Agamemnon in the Trojan War. In such a narrative, history loses the characteristic absolutism of science and religion. The reader is under no cultural compulsion to believe in what he reads, for what he reads is offered in the freedom of imaginative reception that characterizes artistic expression. As in the fictional histories of Jorge Luis Borges or Stanislav Lem, 
The boundaries between truth and fiction are intentionally blurred for the best of artistic and epistemological reasons. That's on point, isn't it? What you were just saying, and that marvelous quote from William Irwin Thompson puts the seal on it, is we're talking about two different ideas of truth, two different orders of truth. One that is historical through and through, as Theodore Adorno liked to say, and one that is ahistorical, or we might say timeless, Mm -hmm. an idea of truth that precisely by standing above the flux of time and change, commend themselves to our care and attention, and truths that are entirely imminent to the doings of human beings at certain places and certain times. Now, in contemporary humanities academia, the emphasis has gone entirely onto the historical the historicizable aspect of culture. So, for example, if I'm talking about a piece of classical music, which is appropriate since classical music is the main figure of culture that is used again and again in this novel, like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. That's always my example. It's like your Van Gogh sunflowers. Yeah. Um, You know, you could say that the design of it, the way that the last movement, for example, brings in a chorus singing Schiller's Ode to Joy, You could say that the tonal structure that Beethoven erects in that gigantic movement amounts to a truth, like, or it points to a truth that is contingently embodied in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and that that symphony did, in fact, occur. It was composed at a particular time in the 1820s and has had a certain life in history since, but that that meaning is a kind of logos that stands outside of time and is 
not dimmed or dinged or damaged or enhanced in any way by the passing time. Like the lotus flower. Exactly. And there's a way of looking at culture, seeing what it means in terms of human history, and there's a way of looking at what it means in terms of how it resists human history. And these two ways of thinking come to a head in a conversation that Knecht has with his friend Tegularius. Now, as Knecht goes along in his education and he moves further and further up the hierarchy, he's given more jobs to do. And the main task that he's given before he becomes Magister Ludi is a kind of envoy to a Benedictine monastery. And at first, he doesn't even know why he's been sent. They're like, oh, well, the, the brothers want to learn the glass bead game, so maybe you can give a preparatory course for them. But it's obvious that that's not the real reason he's there. And over time, it becomes clear that his superiors in the hierarchy are hoping that he will meet and befriend an old Benedictine scholar there, Father Jacobus. And Knecht's superiors want Knecht to befriend Father Jacobus because he's a powerful and influential man in the Vatican hierarchy. And they want to make overtures to the Catholic Church because they see themselves very much in the same way that they see the Catholic Church as an institution aimed at longevity and aimed at the preservation of certain truths that are often roughly handled in the profane world. The leaders of the order intuit that there's much to be gained from an alliance between the Catholic Church and the order. However, Father Jacobus, who is one of the leading intellectuals of the church and somebody who could make that happen, is quite hostile to the glass bead game. He yeah. views it as a pastime of dilettantes, that it's something that, while very elegant and capable of expressions of immense virtuosity, and Knecht is one of the very greatest of virtuosi of the game, he can't quite respect it because he feels that it ultimately doesn't respect history. There's, no, there's no skin in the game. There's no skin in the game. Yes, exactly. And Jacobus, while he serves eternal powers... And his mind is ultimately on eternal things and eternal truths, nevertheless, has through his historical researches, a keen understanding of how truth must always be manifested in some contingent human form. Well, it's, yeah, it's kind of key, a key thing in Christianity. It's the whole idea of incarnation is precisely that, that you can't just stay up in, in the clouds, the ether. Yeah. You have to somehow instantiate or manifest. And it's a little bit like... Thomas Mann's novel, The Magic Mountain, where you have these long passages of argumentation between Sedembrini and Nafta, um, who represent different points of view, and the interplay of the different points of view is part of the interest of the novel. So from that point of view, we can call Glass Bead Game a novel of ideas, although I think it's much more than that. But in any event, the friendship between Knecht and Father Jacobus proceeds as Knecht develops an authentic interest in and facility for history, writing history. And Jacobus comes to see the glass bead game as something beautiful, as something worthy of preservation. Yeah. He comes to see that 
perhaps the order, you know, in fact, both men come to see that the order in the Catholic Church are, in a sense, after something similar. But these are both men of unusually broad vision, and both of them are working with people who just are very much in and of the institutional prejudices of their respective orders. And so Joseph has a friend named Tegularius, who is a kind of ultimate virtuoso, but he's also neurotic and antisocial, unwise, kind of silly and pampered, belongs to this elite class of high-level glass bead game players who basically never need to work a day in their life. Their needs are provided for by the order, and their job is just to conduct ever more esoteric researches into the archive of the game. And Tegularius is somebody who while he hates the hierarchy, he's a sort of an individualist, he also really can't think outside of the assumptions of right. the order. Sounds like a modern academic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Tegelers is, in fact, a really good sort of satirical figure of, a, of you know, an academic, yeah. a certain kind of academic at any rate. Right. And so at one point when Knesht is back from his visit to the Benedictine monastery, he and Tegularis have an argument about history. And this is Tegularis's rant on history. Of course, it's possible to talk wittily, amusingly, even emotionally, if need be, about interpretations of history, the philosophy of history, he declared. There's as much sport in that as in discussing other philosophies, and I don't have any objection if someone wants to entertain himself that way. But the thing itself, the subject of this amusement, history, is both banal and diabolic, both horrible and boring. I don't understand how anyone can waste time on it. Its sole content is sheer human egotism and the struggle for power. Those engaged in the struggle forever overestimate it, forever glorify their own enterprises, but it is nothing but brutal, bestial, material power they seek, a thing that doesn't exist in the mind of the Castalian. Or if it does, has not the slightest value. I'm not sure we've mentioned it yet, but Castalia is the name of the province. Yeah. The pedagogical province is called, where all the teacher training for the rest of the unnamed nation that Castalia is a province of, it's where all the teachers for that nation are trained. And it's also where the glass bead game is practiced to its ultimate point of refinement. Mm -hmm. So this argument between Tegularius and Joseph is conducted in terms of like what is proper to a Castalian. World history is nothing but an endless dreary account of the rape of the weak by the strong. To associate real history, the timeless history of mind, with this age-old stupid scramble of the ambitious for power and the climbers for a place in the sun, to link the two, let alone to try to explain the one by the other, is in itself betrayal of the living spirit. It reminds me of a sect fairly widespread in the 19th or 20th century whose members seriously believed that the sacrifices, the gods, the temples, and the myths of ancient peoples, as well as all other pleasant things, were the consequences of a calculable shortage or surplus of food and work. <laughs> the results of attention measurable in terms of wages and the price of bread. So <laughs> a little bit of social... Little, yeah, exactly. A satirical swipe at Marx. And keep in mind, this is science fiction or a kind of speculative fiction. So imagining a future where the historical record, what has survived the cataclysm of the age of the futon, is inexact and partial. And maybe people don't have a great idea of what Marxism is. But yes, this is an yes. opportunity to take a swipe at Marxism. And so 
Tegularis is saying, basically, there is an eternal truth that these works of the spirit embody. And that has nothing to do with profane history. And that to explain those works of the spirit in terms of that profane history is absolute barbarism. And lest you think that I'm unsympathetic to that point of view, even though I kind of am, I mean, as a historian, how could I not be? Nevertheless, we have said similar things on this show, decrying a kind of often Marxist or Marxoid at any rate, reduction of the aesthetic to the political economy. We were just talking about this pretty, uh, pretty straightforwardly with Connor on his show. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And that's a super important point to come to because it is very difficult to entangle, I think, but both what you and I think about this, because it seems like either take, if it's going to be uh, categorical, is going to fall into some serious problem, like serious errors or problems. How can... You, you mentioned two orders of truth. How can specifiable historical truths connect to this idea of eternal truth? Well, one thing we've often discussed is the implicit affirmation of truth in those quarters of, let's call it post-modernity or post-structuralism, which denies the category of truth. Like someone like Foucault who sometimes in his work seems to be saying that truth is purely a function of power. But of course, the the obvious kind of philosophy 101 problem with that is that if truth is a function of power... Well, then why should we believe you? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So there needs to be some kind of dialogue between truthful utterances within history and some kind of order of truth that makes possible those utterances. The problem with modernity, I think a big part of it, is working out that connection. How does that work? What does that mean? Is it like Plato said? Is it, is it, 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 can we just go back to a kind of more classical apprehension of this stuff? I think that we need to come up with some new way of negotiating being and becoming truth and fact. Yeah. They're not synonymous. And yet you can't just take one and throw the other away. Like, you know, and it seems like Tegularis is trying to just hold being up and throw becoming in the trash. Whereas the age of the Feuilleton people, uh, us, we tend to just grab onto becoming and want to throw being into the trash. Being is the superstructure, being is the epiphenomenon. And it seems like or either merely path, an illusion. An, an illusion. Yeah, that's what I meant by epiphenomenon. Yeah, a kind of mirage yeah. floating on top of things. So Right, exactly. And, and there's a beautiful poem at the end of the book. Um, well, the poems are not beautiful. They're, they're okay. He wrote them as though he was, <laughs> he was a young teenager himself. Yeah, they're, they're written to evoke the kind of poems written by a young man. Yeah, exactly. Without but, great knowledge of the world. But one of them, I won't read it, is about how... It seems to be have been written from the point of view of someone within the age of the photon. And it's saying, maybe one day our suffering and our confusion and stuff will look saintly and noble to those who look back on us. There's a beautiful optimism in this book, which is saying that, because it seems to be hypercritical of, of, our, of our times, 
But at the same time, it's kind of getting at the point that we are going through something we need, we must go through in order to come to some kind of new synthesis. We're learning how to live on a planet as opposed to live in a kingdom or an empire or this Mm -hmm. or that. And how do you live on a planet? One of my favorite books on this topic is um, David Tracy's almost unreadable, but really, really awesome work of theology. I forget the title now. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, How do we live on a planet with multiple things existing on it, some of which seem to contradict each other or defy one another's existence? How do we honor the multiplicity, the plurality, while maintaining some idea of objective truth? Uh, And by objective, I don't mean objective in like a detached scientific way. I mean, objective in the sense of the timeless, of a timeless truth. You know, someone like Jung might have said that even the wars of the last 120 years, the social conflicts, the civil rights struggles are all aimed at trying to come to this kind of synthesis. Maybe putting it in terms of a synthesis as being too too abstract already, some kind of vision um, Mm. that will enable us to become planetary. Jeremy Johnson has uh, written some interesting things about that, about the idea of planetary culture. And when he when he uh, talks about um, uh, Gene Gebser, he interprets Gebser in terms of of his being some kind of prophet for a planetary culture. Marshall McLuhan could be brought up here as well. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Théal de Chardin, you know, who tried to come up with some kind of cosmic Catholicism that would be able to even transcend the church, transcend religion even. Um, mm. And uh, so this search for the synthesis, and this is something that's, I think it's just central to modernity. We don't talk about it often. It's kind of the spiritual drive of, of modern. One of the ideas that kept coming back to my mind as I read the book was the idea of uh, mathesis. Do you, are you familiar with this idea? It's from modern philosophy. It starts with Descartes and Leibniz, mathesis, so M-A-T-H-E-S-I-S. And these early modern philosophers, Descartes and Leibniz specifically, believed that there was some kind of language that wasn't mathematics, that undergirded mathematics and music and geometry and, and uh, well, geometry is mathematics, and uh, science of also, and philosophy and me- metaphysics, some kind of union of the mathematical, the metaphysical, and the historical, some kind of language, ur language, that the modern philosopher had to discover in order to bring the synthesis into being. And the idea of mathesis was kind of this, um, mathesis universalis was is the full term for what they were talking about, universal uh, synthesizing language that looks a lot like the glass bead game, some kind of symbolic technology that would enable us to contain all of knowledge, to kind of like, like the logos developed into a kind of game we could play. And then the idea of mathesis ended up circulating in occult sectors in the 19th century. There was a guy called Malfatti. I never read his book, but uh, who wrote about Mathesis. And the this idea comes up in Joshua Ramey's book on Gilles Deleuze. He says that Deleuze was secretly, clandestinely, esoterically trying to develop an idea of Mathesis. And I'm just saying all this by way of illustrating that this search for a new synthesis is kind of what lies behind the great modern struggle, 
you know, that uh, Charles Taylor, for one, explores and describes so beautifully in his work. And in a way, to think of it in those terms, it to me, it ennobles the modern project. And it, it, it reminds me of something we've said before. It says, the problem is not that we're modern. The problem is we're not modern enough. We haven't really gone to the end of what it means to be modern. And, uh, and I see the glass bead game as a beautiful symbol of that. It's interesting. This idea of mathesis has in itself a kind of unstable boundary between what we call spiritual and what we call intellectual. Right. Or pertaining to the faculty of spirit and the faculty of reason. Because, you know, I mean, it's not that history is absent from the glass bead game. It's just the attitude seems to be anything useful that ever happened in history, if it is useful, it is abstractable into the glass bead game. That like that which history gives birth to or gives rise to only can attain something of truth when it is abstracted. Yeah. And put in play with other similar abstractions because that allows you to transcend time and go into a timeless or eternal realm. But when we're talking, I mean, certainly in present day academic humanities, if you start talking about eternal truths or timeless truths, that has a distinctly theological flavor and people will call you out for that. I want to read Joseph Kneck's response to Tegularius because it's interesting because he gives to Tegularis' side what is due to it, but at the same time maintains a pretty cogent reservation, which I think sort of lies behind what you're saying, that there needs to be some way in the modern for us to be in history and yet retrieve something of history that transcends history without at the same time thereby eliminating history or yeah, history. Exactly. <laughs> and so this is what Joseph Knecht says. Your love for culture and the products of the mind does you credit. But it happens that cultural creativity is something we cannot participate in quite so fully as some people think. A dialogue of Plato's or a choral movement by Heinrich Isaac. In fact, all the things we call a product of the mind or a work of art or objectified spirit, these are the outcomes of a struggle for purification and liberation. They are, to use your phrase, escapes from time into timelessness. And in most cases, the best such works are those which no longer show any signs of the anguish and effort that preceded them. It is a great good fortune that we have these works, and of course we Castellians live almost entirely by them. The only creativity we have left lies in preserving them. We live permanently in that realm beyond time and conflict, embodied in those very works and which we would know nothing of but for them. And we go even further into the realms of pure mind, or if you prefer, pure abstraction. In our glass bead game, we analyze those products of the sages and artists into their components. We derive rules of style and patterns of form from them, and we operate with these abstractions as though they were building blocks. Of course, all this is very fine. No one will contend otherwise. But not everyone can spend his entire life breathing, eating, and drinking nothing but abstractions. History has one great strength over the things of Waldstel, Tudor feels to be worthy of his interest. It deals with reality. Abstractions are fine, but I think people also have to breathe air and eat bread. 
Yeah. Doesn't answer the question, how? How do we do this? And I don't think, firstly, I don't think Hesse knew the answer. I don't think well, Hesse even thought there was an answer. And I don't think there is an answer, but there is the practice. Okay, well, here's one possible answer, or the beginning of an answer. Um, this will be very weird studies. Um, there are two games in this book that are played. There's the glass bead game, and then there's the yarrow stick game, right? Because the I Ching That's is, right. a, is a huge part that. of this book. Connect early on becomes kind of obsessed with Chinese philosophy and visits one of the other scholar monks of the order um, who's called the elder brother. And he's this guy has basically reinvented himself as a Chinese sage. He lives out in a bamboo garden somewhere and i'm assuming this is in europe somewhere in the, in yeah. the and he, he lives out this kind of the life of a lao tzu or something and um connect goes to see him to learn how to use the I Ching, and he teaches them and, and the I Ching is and then when when connect goes to the benedictine monastery and i thought this was a nice touch he teaches the monks how to use the I Ching, and the I Ching is a kind of mathesis as is the tarot it's so funny that divination is kind of what we're looking for in a way, because divinatory mm. systems are there. Well, how can I say this? They're not abstract. They're, they're abstract in a sense. Like, okay. So I'm thinking about the, I should do the tarot and the I Ching separately. The I Ching is more abstract than the, than the tarot. The tarot is an more or less an analog system with digital components. The I Ching is a digital system with analog components. Because the I Ching, the system of the I Ching, the yarrow stock, the, the hexagrams are a digital system, but they come with text that is hyper analog yeah. and very uh, uh, idiosyncratic and strange and riddly. Whereas the tarot is a... Is a it's a picture a, book. It's a picture book with the pages torn out so you can mix them. But both of these systems, their purpose is to contain all knowledge. That's um, right. You could look at Kabbalism as a kind of mythesis, magic in general. And uh, it's funny how magic crops up here and there in this book, very much in passing every time, but kind of haunts the book, the idea of magic. Maybe the answer that modernity is looking for is partially kind of innovation, but partially also, and this would go, this would be in keeping with your idea of abstraction without divorcing oneself from concreteness. Maybe it's both an innovation and a, a kind of restoration or rescue mm. of something. And, you know, maybe the, one of the reasons why divination keeps coming back in our conversations is because there's something about it that we still haven't quite figured out. Something that goes back to what Ramey was saying about the fifth cause and all that, that we can't really quite think yet. But maybe some of these ideas that we think are just insolubly weird are Maybe some of these ideas are just ideas in the making, something that in the future we'll be able to say, okay, we have this way of looking at things now that we couldn't have imagined before, some mathesis, some way of having synthesized things that seemed incommensurable before. You know, I was jumping to my go-to response when encountering a truly difficult question, which is to say, there's no answer, but we have to just keep asking the question because that's, that's kind of my answer to everything. Yeah. Um, but I like the idea that maybe actually what we're talking about here as an actual positive step that we could take in order to reconcile the truths that appear in and of history and the truths that 
transcend history, perhaps there is something that we can do. And Joshua Ramey puts it this way at the end of his essay, Contingency Without Unreason, which we discussed with him when he was on our show fairly early on. He, he writes, and this is in a, an end note, the last end note of this article, divination is neither merely ludic nor simply perverse, unless playful polymorphous perversity defines existence as such. And if it does, then the humorous dimension of existence has no real contrast. The ethics of the logic of sense could then be read no longer as a logic of perversion, but as a survival mandate, occupy and practice divination. And I always thought that was interesting, that line, occupy and practice divination yeah, as an injunction for the modern who wants to survive, who wants to survive the age of the futon and the various forces that we see consuming the things that we love and that we care about. But why would divination, I remember reading that and being like, well, I'm an enthusiast of divination, but why would divination have some claim to being like a survival strategy, actually a way out of this mess? But- I really like how you framed it. Thinking of the I Ching as a kind of mythesis, it certainly is. I mean, the Chinese, before the Mao Zedong and post-Mao Zedong era, Chinese intellectuals, as Joseph Needham commented, tended to see the I Ching as a kind of filing cabinet in which every phenomenon you could encounter has its slot. It has its place in that sort of filing cabinet system. And so when you're defining, you are in fact making a play of everything that exists. Everything that exists in history and in phenomenal existence also has a kind of a double in the archetypal world that the I Ching tells us about. That in fact we feel close to in casting the yarrow sticks or the or the coins when we're divining. So from that point of view, divination is not just like asking what's going to happen or asking like narrow questions about our lives, though it can be that, and indeed that's a very important part of what it is. It's also the connection of these mundane aspects of our lives with this vast pattern with these vast patterns that, you know, the glass bead game existed to abstract. The I Ching abstracts those patterns as well, but we're living them. So they can't remain abstract to us. Yes. And yet in the act of divination, we also touch something trans-temporal, trans-historical, something eternal. Well, it's, it is the synthesis though. That's what the act of divination is. When do you divine? You divine when you have a situation, a concrete historical situation in your life. Let's call that situation an instantiation, an instance of work. How do I get through the situation? How do I navigate this particular minefield I'm facing? I'm going to throw the arrow stocks and see what happens. You take your concrete life, your historical life, you take your existence as a person where the stakes couldn't be higher because any human life has as high stakes as you could imagine, and you turn it- It's, it's literally life and death. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you turn it at your altar, at your table, you turn that concrete, historical, tragic, comic life into a game for 15 minutes or whatever amount of time it takes. You step out- you abstract your life in order to serve its concrete unfolding. 
It's like the act of divination is in itself a kind of beautiful marriage of the abstract and the concrete. Um, I don't know. I just think that uh, it, it's it's the perfect metaphor for what it is that we seem to be looking for, <laughs> if, it's, if it's a metaphor at all. speed game is a game the I Ching in the book is described as a game and I, I like thinking of divination as a game I like thinking of tarot as a game but the reason why some people might balk at that is that the I Ching the glass bead game and the tarot aren't finite games and in our culture we're used to talking about games in terms of their finitude, their finite nature. Games are exercises from which there always emerges a winner and a loser, right? Games begin and end, and games have a perimeter outside of which they have no real consequence on anything. Right. In theory, of course. But um, this is a book that you and I have been talking about doing a show on for a long time, James Carse's Finite and Infinite Games, which is, I'm sorry to say, read by business people a lot of the time. <laughs> uh, but it should be reclaimed or claimed by our... Our, our weird brethren. <laughs> exactly. I'm just going to read the very first little section in this book. So this is a book of basically of aphorisms and short little mini essays that Carse wrote about this idea of the infinite game. Uh, he starts the book as follows. There are at least two kinds of games. One could be called finite, the other infinite. A finite game is played for the purpose of winning. An infinite game for the purpose of continuing the play. So this idea of an infinite game will seem kind of counterintuitive and, and kind of almost nonsensical to a lot of people, I'm, I'm assuming. How do you play a game whose only point is to continue play. So that every move you make is done not in the spirit of winning, but in the spirit of letting the play continue. Now, those of us listening, those of you who listening to this who have played Dungeons and Dragons or other role-playing games will know exactly what an infinite game is. These are games that have no winners and losers. These are games in which a good player is not one that wins, but one who allows the game to continue. And um, I would suggest that the glass bead game, which also doesn't have winners and losers, according to Hesse, he never mentions that any point system or, or scoring system of any sort. 
Yeah. Uh, I would say that the glass bead game is being offered to us uh, by Hesse as a kind of entelechy, a kind of new way of thinking about, not just about games, but about the, the relation between work and play, what play can be. I think what I was trying to get at earlier is that divination is also giving us an idea of what infinite play might look like, of what it might mean to live your life to its tragicomic maximum pitch at the same time as you maintain a spirit of play. The glass bead game at one point is described as, at one point when, uh, when Knecht is first kind of discovering the game, he writes in a journal, uh, quote, the whole of both physical and mental life is a dynamic phenomenon of which the glass bead game basically comprehends only the aesthetic side and does so predominantly as an image of rhythmic processes. That sounds really abstract, but to look at life as a dynamic system, something that can be played with, something that can be appreciated in a purely aesthetic level, to do that from within the theater of action and drama and history, that seems to be what divination is inviting us to do. It seems to be giving us a way to play without losing the concrete, without losing the stakes. Look at life as a kind of artwork but an artwork of the most serious kind in another sense. Yes. Yeah, I don't know if any of this makes any sense, to be honest. It does. You know, the last line in Finite and Infinite Games is, there is but one infinite game. Yeah. Isn't that right? Yes. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, let me just uh, confirm that. There is but one infinite game. And... That's the point at which the book has a decidedly spiritual flavor to it. You get to the end, you realize, oh, all this time you've been talking about life itself. And every finite game is some encapsulation of some process or element of life. But the only thing that could be an infinite game would be life itself. He doesn't, I don't think, say that, but that's at least how I would make sense of it. And I suppose if we're being strict, we'd say that no game, even this sublime system of the I Ching, could encapsulate life simply because the map is not the territory, that any schema or representation of life that we can come up with, however detailed, is still not going to be the thing itself. I don't know what to do with that. Maybe I could sort of set that scruple aside and just sort of say, like, what I like about your comment is the notion that, at the very least, tabletop role-playing games, games of divination, and this fictional game, the glass bead game, are uh, infinite-ish. They <laughs> there is at least a gesture towards the infinite or touching the infinite. Yeah. But the infinite isn't contained in the game. The infinite is the play. It's the spirit that the game invites you to inhabit. Like anybody could play the I Ching finitely or infinitely. But some games are built in a finite structure. Yeah, indeed. Almost all Mon of them. Monopoly is finite. <laughs> There's, yeah. But these are games that are not, that have their open-ended. So they're open-ended historical contingent objects. Yes. But they're machineries that invite one, you, me, whoever, to inhabit, if only for a time, a kind of eternity, 
Like, while play lasts, there is no time. And that's the reminder in a way. And that's maybe the, these games are just maybe just symbols, symbols calling us to the fact that there is only one game and that that game is infinite. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.